Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Welcome to the Ignatius Press author interview show. This is my first attempt at it and also our author, Father Simeon, Erasmo Leva Merikakis. You can't see the Kakis on there, but it's that's a full name there. Uh, and uh, I am the founder and editor of Ignatius Press, and Father Simeon is very close to being the founding translator of our press, and also one of the founding members of the St. Ignatius Institute, which I was directing at the time that I met Erasmo. And dear Father Simeon, Let's reminisce on the first time we met. Well, first of all, how do we meet at all? Ignatius Press began because we wanted to publish the works of the great European authors, Dubac, von Balthasar, Ratzinger, Boyer, and that required translation. And so when we began to do translation, I got a postcard from Hans Urson Balthasar, one of his typical little postcards, saying, uh, there's a young graduate student in Emory University uh, in Georgia who will, will be a fine translator. And so I contacted you. And what was the first book you translated? Heart of the World. Heart of the World. Our very first book, although it came out a month after Bouillet's book, Woman in the Church, but still in print, still a glorious book. And then uh, when we began the St. Ignatius Institute, we were looking for faculty and we decided to try and bring in uh, then Erasmo uh, to University of San Francisco. And I recall in those days, we used to say morning prayer in St. Ignatius Church on the left-hand side, the Marian little altar there. And uh, we were just finishing morning prayer and you walked up the side aisle of St. Ignatius Church, bleary-eyed from an all-night bus trip. And that was when I first, and I remember your eyes were like little pin pricks uh, because you, you were so tired. Correction, not an all night. If you remember, I'm coming from Atlanta to San Francisco yes. by yes. Greyhound bus. So it was more like four nights uh, of on and off sleeping on the buses. Yes. Well, and that was the beginning of a long friendship. Although it's been 16 years, I think, since we've actually talked. You've been lived a more eremitic life there as a uh, Trappist, uh, whereas I, although I'm a Jesuit, I become kind of a recluse. But let's get to these books. Now, there's actually, there's actually, we see them here, we have four volumes here, okay, <laughs> on Matthew's Gospel. And, uh, you know, volume one uh, was published in 1996, and it has 746 pages, uh, and it gets as far as Matthew chapter 11, verse 29c. Now, by dividing these verses up into A, B, C, D, he was able to make it even longer, you know, because he comments on on the subversive. But uh, Father Simeon Erasmo, uh, what led you to want to write a commentary on St. Matthew's Gospel. It's uh, it's a serendipitous story, Father Fessio, because I was in uh, with my family in the south of France uh, on my first sabbatical year from the University of San Francisco. 
So that was in 1983. And um, I had another project, a much more academic and serious, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, intellectual project on Catholic prophecy. I wanted to write a book on Flannery O'Connor and Leon Blois and modern Catholic prophecy. This was actually my project. Oh, yeah. Uh, would, I, would, this, I, would I have been in that book? Would you have been? Well, maybe. <laughs> in, yes, in, in the acknowledgments page. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, in the acknowledgments page, I have a lot to acknowledge to you. Just a little footnote here for bringing me to San Francisco. This is why transplanted from Georgia. Uh, two of my children were born in San Francisco. I lived there for almost 30 years. I had a whole career at the University of San Francisco and with the press. And it's really all because of you, because of that letter to von Balthasar and his postcard to you. That's where it all started. So this is a long story. We, we've been through yes. a lot. Yeah, 40 years. A anyway, so the, the origin of this volume one, which I have here also. So I was supposed to write that book and... Uh, so I worked on that in the mornings, you know, doing research. My personal project that year was in the afternoons, I wanted to read the whole New Testament in Greek. Uh, I've read a lot in the New Testament in Greek, but I wanted to do the whole New Testament in Greek. Uh, for, and of course, the, the first thing in the New Testament is the Gospel of Matthew, as we all know. But that was just a personal thing. And as I started reading that meditatively in the afternoon, I, when I read, I take little notes. So I began just taking down jottings on the genealogy uh, uh, in Matthew. And to make a long story short, little jottings became slowly complete sentences and sentences became paragraphs. And at the same time, a monastery of Benedictine women down there near Aix-en-Provence at Jouk, and this was almost Advent time in 1983, they invited me to give them conferences. And I said, what shall I talk about? And then I looked at these notes on the gospel. I said, perfect, it's the beginning of the gospel of Matthew. I'll talk to the nuns about this. So that added a little steam. And then the, the notes became paragraphs, became conferences. And truly, before I knew it, I was writing a book. I did not intend to write a book on Matthew or anything else. It happened. All right. And then uh, did we propose to you or you proposed to us? We finally published it or what? Recall? <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't want to publish it. <laughs> I, uh, how, it took me several years to finish the manuscript to where it was sizable enough to say. And so I gave it to, to Carolyn Lemon uh, and uh, Carolyn liked it. And uh, I mean, I don't know whether you liked it or not, but I, I, I didn't think that you thought it was sellable. And um, but then you said something like, well, you're one of our translators. I can say I can tell you've done a lot of work on this. We'll get, you know, here goes nothing kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> but we were still a young press at the time. And, you know, most yes. were trying, trying to publish these translations. And, you know, let's face it, this is a huge book. It and it's a book with a lot of Greek in it. It's even got it's even got Hebrew in it. We got the Alpha, Alice, just yes. a little yes. mark yeah, between the, the paragraphs there. Yeah, you know you've got Greek in here, and it's yep. you know seven hundred pages and more. It's a big thick brick, 
and we just thought that well okay it's worth it's very worthwhile it's a beautiful meditative book but who's going to buy this thing you know especially it would be it would be costly but as it turned out it, it did surprise all of us not because we didn't think it was good but because it it elicited so much positive response we sold i mean i don't know any printing we've done many printings of this book but then of course so that was 1996 so you started in 83 so it took you 13 years to get volume one and to go through the first 11 chapters and of course we thought well matthew you know there's 28 chapters so this is kind of 11 well maybe we'll get a we'll get a second volume out of this you know <laughs> yeah for the rest of matthew <laughs> yeah yeah right and so then you went on and we get volume two which is which is a slender 668 pages you know what a full that's that's the shortest one that's the shortest it one. is and, and it got to matthew 1833 so we got seven we got seven verses only in that uh so uh, uh chapters and then so that was seven years later and then nine years after that we get volume three which is 870 pages that's the largest of them all which goes up to Matthew 25, 45. Now, we only got two and a half chapters left. So we said, okay, well, the last volume would be a slim one, right? It was. It's fairly fairly slim, comparatively, but it's 684 pages. Now, I, I don't want to discourage people from uh, and reading this book, but it's not a book you read from beginning to end. This is a book that's on your prayer stand, your nightstand, you know, in the chapel, or you use it for your meditation, right? Yeah, and you know, I, I always like, there's a favorite quote of mine to justify myself and my word wordiness, I guess, from uh, Gregory the Great, uh, who says in one of his commentaries on scripture, you know, he, he says, uh, verbum crescit cum legente, the word grows with the reader or with the act of reading, yeah. I said, I like that, you know, I like, yeah, well, you know, and it's true. I mean, it's, it's kind of a justification, but at the same time, the word of God, you know, and this is what enthralls me. It's so rich that it brings forth, you know, it's planted in you, it's planted in each one of us and things begin growing out of us that we didn't even know were in us. You know, this kind of symbiosis of the word with my soul and with my faith, it's an amazing thing that to watch happen, you know, and it multiplies. Yeah. That's called a self-fulfilling prophecy that uh, the word grows with reading, that you made that prophecy and then you fulfilled it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, 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 you know, believe me, Carolyn, Carolyn Lemon, <clears throat> wonderful editor that she is, uh, uh, really liked the book. But in between volumes, she was always trying to kind of, you know, uh, I guess, discipline me a little bit and say, now, remember that we have to, we have to uh, be a little economical here with words. So please try to little, be a little more succinct. And I would make every uh, good, you know, uh, resolution attempt. in the book, yeah, attempt. Yeah. But I don't know, my style is my style. And then Ca Carolyn yeah. finally said, do what you need to do, and we'll see what we do with it, you know. By the way, for our listeners and viewers, uh, Carolyn Lemon is the woman who's still here, uh, as I am so far. We're both in our 80s. Uh, and with me, she founded Ignatius Press back in 1978. She's our production editor. But here at Ignatius Press, we're kind of a family. And uh, everybody 
who's here also reads our manuscripts, reads our books. So it's not just that you're here as a functionary or some kind of a staff job. We're all book lovers, lovers of the church. And so some of the things, Erasmo, whenever we don't have focus groups, you know, we don't, you know, we don't send out books to manuscripts to people to re review them. If we like it, we think it'll help the church, we publish it and let, let things fall where they may. And for 43 years, pretty much every year, uh, more money has come in than has gone out. So we're still here, you know. <laughs> now, uh, Father Simeon, or I, I have to keep calling you Rasmus because I knew you as a Rasmus Labor Medicacus. Uh, oh, I will say to our viewers and listeners here, uh, Rasmus is a very good translator. Uh, he's one of those people that makes you very angry if you've ever tried to learn a language because he speaks several of them and he can go from one to another in, in mid-sentence. Whereas although I spent time in France and Germany and Italy, when I try and speak or write, it's it's a it's a quick translation is what it is. I'm not really speaking it, I'm translating. So but this is in Greek. And that se second part of your last name there, which is not quite fully showing up on my screen, it's Mary Kakis. So explain to us your Greek roots. Yes. Uh First of all, why do I have the two names with a hyphen? It's because in, in the Spanish tradition, all over the Hispanic world, Spain and Latin America, uh, we keep our mother's maiden name as a, we call it a second last name. And so we keep both, even though you would be listed under the, I would be listed under the L, the fathers. The first one is the father and then the mother. Anyway, so my father is Cuban and Leva is a very Spanish name. Merikakis is an extremely Greek name. Uh, my mother was a Greek American. She was first generation in this country, but both of her parents, my grandparents emigrated from Greece at the beginning of the 20th century uh, to to this very state of Massachusetts where I am now, they emigrated here not far away. And so I've had, even though Spanish and English were really my first two languages, Greek was always sort of in the air. Whenever we visited my grandparents, especially when I came to this country from Cuba, I lived with them. And so I have a love, I mean, I am Greek and I heard Greek, learned the alphabet early on. And so I got that in my, uh, in my DNA, so to speak. And I think that in this in this work, it kind of <laughs> uh, came to full life, so to speak, because when I when I deal with the Greek texts, I always think of my grandparents. For me, it's an extremely personal thing to read the gospel out loud in Greek, and what it evokes is not, you know, some ancient dusty site or something. It evokes my grandmother's kitchen. And she and my grandfather speaking to Greek in Greek with one another. And so it's, it's a matter of the heart for me, the gospel in Greek. Well, you know, in chemistry, a polymer is a many parted molecule because poly means many and mer means part in Greek. Yes. And, and a bad sound is cacophony because kakos means bad and phony is sound. So you are Mary Kakis. Now, does that mean? Partly bad, or the bad part, or what's what's the etymology? Your name? <laughs> I, I don't. That that ending, Akis, Akis is a typical like uh, Nikos Kazantzakis, the famous uh, yeah. writer uh, Theodorakis. It's a typical Greek ending, but that ending Akis originally comes from the island of Crete, 
It, it's really, it's a name, it, it's a place name ending, Merikakis, even though my grandparents didn't come from Crete, but the name did, we know that. And uh, as for a more literal meaning, I don't know, but I don't, I don't think it's, I hope it isn't what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all partly bad, so. That's of course, of course, only part, partly, half and half. So to get to the, let's take the, well, let's not take the fourth one, let's take the whole series here. Uh, you pick Matthew's gospel, I mean, not for any, it was just the first gospel, right? It, 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 really, that's that's the reason. But, but, but course, that it, having, wasn't, it wasn't written in Greek, apparently, for, originally, right? It was originally Aramaic. There is a pretty substantial theory that it was written in Aramaic. But the thing is, it's a theory, it's a probable hypo hypothesis. But the thing is that what we've had from the beginning, the church, right. is the Greek text, the Koine Greek of, of Matthew. Even if in a sense it's a translation, uh, uh, you see, we, al we already have, um, as part of the, for instance, when Matthew quotes the Old Testament, and obviously Matthew quotes the Old Testament a lot, because he's he's writing probably to a um, a Jewish Christian community, and so it's the most Jewish of the Gospels, and he's very, very eager to prove everything about our Lord as the fulfillment of promises made to, to Israel. So he's continually, continually quoting the Old Testament. When he does that, usually he quotes the Old Testament not according to the Hebrew text, but according to the Greek Septuagint, which is the, the Jewish translation into Greek of the Old Testament. It's pre-Christian, but that's the text that Matthew was using. Now, whether this was the translation of Aramaic Matthew or what, we don't know that, but I'm very happy that it comes in Greek even from the Old Testament, you see. Did, did you find in your going through Matthew's Greek what seemed to be Aramaisms to you? I mean- all the, all the time, all the time. But we find those you, you know, you know, expressions like it came to pass, uh, you know, it became is really what it says. But you find that you find that in all the New Testament in Paul, too, because these are all Semitic roots that all these early Christians had, but particularly in Matthew, particularly in Matthew. Then what uh, any particular parts of Matthew, which because of the Greek, uh, you found more more illumination in, or is it? Would you just say the gospel is is good from beginning to end? As uh... Uh, yeah, I mean yes, I would say I I don't think any one part. I mean there are moments in the gospel, you know, for instance, at the very end, at the very end of volume one, uh, and that's really, I mean, not only did I have enough pages, but you know the. The, the very ending, Matthew 11, you know, 28, 29, uh, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Learn from me because I am gentle and humble of heart. Uh, the, the, um, a, a great uh, Matthew comment, uh, commentator has said that that is the, the, the gem, the jewel of Matthew's gospel. It's very Johannine. 
it's not really in keeping with the it's it's because it's so interior it's very mystical it's very affective and so forth you know I mean, I like that passage in, in particular, which, you know, who doesn't prefer a passage like that? But the thing is that Matthew can have that in the middle of all sorts of talk about the law, the fulfillment of the law, I have not come to uh, abolish the law, but to fulfill it and so forth. So I, I think that in a sense, Matthew has it all. He has the, the, the concerns about the fulfillment of the law, but also the mysticism, we would call it, of, of St. John. Um, in a passage like that. So in Matthew, I'm pretty sure, was the most commented gospel in the, in the Middle Ages. Uh, and whereas our friend von Balthasar, I think he would probably take John's gospel as sort of the center of his own reflection. I know St. Dominic, I mean, that was what he carried with him was Matthew's gospel. He memorized it pretty much from beginning to end. Uh, how, how would you suggest that people profit best from these commentaries of yours? Okay. Uh, first of all, I, I'd, I'd like to say one more word, if I may, about sure. Greek. Uh, yeah. About Greek. Uh, mm, not personal, but the... Uh, it, once it was obvious that I was writing a book, and as I said, it took a while for me to discover, oh, I think I'm writing a book. Once I made that choice, I am going to continue, and now I'm going to write it as a book. Um, I wanted to say, well, what kind of a book is this going to be? Um, and obviously personality, personal tastes have a lot to do with that, but also who am I writing this for? And um, I think that in the end, you have to say, this is not original to me, but many people have said, you end up writing the book that, you have been, that you've been looking for but cannot find. You end up writing it yourself. And something like that happened to me. Uh, why? Because for scriptural commentaries, other than the fathers of the church, you know, uh, Origen and Jerome and Gregory the Great and John Chrysostom and all that, but other than the fathers of the church, I have found my most modern commentaries on the gospel in particular disappointing in the sense that they're much too technical. If you want to read a commentary for spiritual purposes, that is to say, to, to deepen your understanding of the person of the Lord, or to, to fuel your prayer, your heart, as well as your mind, you're hard put to find commentaries that will do that, because most of them are extremely academic and extremely technical. They're very useful, but not if you're looking for a prayer aid or a, a booster. Okay, that's that's one extreme. And the other extreme was the, the kind of popularization preaching of the gospel in which, you know, some image reminds you of something and then you say anything at all that you want about the gospel. That's too sloppy. So it, the extremes were the ultra-academic or, the, to me, sloppy. So I said, there's got to be another way. And for me, the way was kind of the objectivity of the Greek text. You know, I am a teacher of literature. I am a grammarian. And I try not to bore people in the book. I don't think I bore them. And I don't do it on every page. But when I think it's relevant 
to pursue the etymology of a word or to point out uh, the, the relevance of a verb tense or the voice, is it active, is it passive, the voice. I do that, but always carefully. Uh, I explain what I'm doing and I have very much in mind, I am talking mostly to people who do not know Greek. So I'm very conscious of that. And, but I'm pretty good at translating. I'm a translator. Yes, you by, are. By nature. Uh, yes. Translating not only, <laughs> not, not only one lam- language to another, but translating, I guess, concepts or uh, showing the importance of a grammatical turn. And that really turned me on, the, 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 uh, the, the, the relevance. You know, if this is the word of God, Let's not get too spiritual about it. It's this, these are the words that providentially the Lord gave us forever in the church as the, the, the means or the entryway to the knowledge of the Son, to the, to the revel- who reveals to us the Father. So I take words very seriously, you see. Well, um, let's, let's go back to that for just a moment because I think it's important. Uh, you mentioned the kind of extremes of the the highly academic uh, circle critical method, let's call it, you know, and then the the fan, fantastical where you just kind of go off on your own ideas and what happens. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I, Balthazar has said somewhere, uh, at least once, and Ratzinger as well, uh, that that we can learn much from the re- results of the historical critical method over the last couple of centuries. However, it should always give us a greater appreciation and understanding of word, not less. It shouldn't restrict us uh, as if we can't find the real Jesus because now we're not sure whether it was in Q or whether it was, you know, uh, a redactor or something like that. But uh, Pope Benedict in his masterful little trilogy on Jesus, in two at least of the introductions, makes it very clear. In fact, he says it in his, his kind of humorous, ironic way. He says, uh, we, we historical critical methods have given us a lot of benefit, but they've kind of reached their term now. There's not much more to squeeze out of that sponge. Uh, and he, I think, gives a, a masterful way of integrating the, the knowledge that comes from the scientific, you know, historical studies to the spiritual meaning, the patristic interpretation, uh, what the mystics and what the prayer of the church has, has discovered over the centuries. And I think uh, with you, with in this book, historical critical uh, research is there, but it's not there on the surface. It's there because you know what they've said about this. And it kind of, uh, in a certain sense, gives a certain uh, structure or limitation to what you're going to say. Uh, but if you prayerfully reflect on what the language actually says, what it means, you know, and you also, of course, Erasmo, you know, are very familiar with the fathers of the church, and particularly Origen, let's say, is a, is a great example of a Bible commentator. Uh, so that's, it's all in here, but it doesn't seem like it's scholarly. It just seems like you're reading the text and reflecting on it. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like... Uh... It's like like praying praying on paper, something like that, because it you know because it it, it means so much to me, um, 
and you know the in that sense too the word grows with the reader in other words words the, the word wants to be shared uh and and i have a sense of uh as i as i write and meditate i have a sense of terrific communion of entering more deeply into the communion of saints both living and and dead it, it, in the sense that it's the word that gives us life and these are the very words you know that all of the generations of the church both scholars and saints and everybody preachers have uh, uh, started with this text in order to to nourish their preaching their meditation and that's to i'm in awe of that i mean that's tremendously moving to to have the privilege of being one more witness if you want of the of, to the power uh, of of the word yes and uh, uh i I don't want to listen maybe get edited out by Kate, uh, but often when I'm reading the gospel at mass and then preaching it, I just I can't stop myself from saying before I begin to give my homily, take that, Mohammed. I mean, I've read the Quran, okay? And there's a lot of beautiful things in the Quran. Most of them come from the Old Testament uh, and partly the New Testament. But uh, it, I know someone could possibly, uh, on a on a bet, have a commentary like this on the first twelve surahs of the Quran or something like that. But the gospel, I mean, it is so rich, it's so deep, it's so multidimensional that I mean, you could have made these books even longer. Oh yeah, you know? oh yeah. I had to, you know, what you're saying there. I think that what you're saying is very true due to the mystery of Christ. It's the mystery yes. of yes. the presence of Christ. And I think it's from Balthasar, you know, who, who, who speaks of, I, th I think, I don't think I'm inventing this. He speaks of the miracle of the text of the gospel, the miracle of the text. And, and he means something very specific by that. He doesn't only mean it's so beautiful and so inspiring. He means something theological. He means that if Jesus Christ is the incarnate God and reveals the Father, who in and of himself is unknowable, infinite, uncircumscribable, and so forth, and nevertheless Jesus embodies him, well, then the gospel text is like an incarnation or in paper and and human human words of the divine word and that's what he means that biblical inspiration is that that we experience the incarnation of the infinite unseen god in audible visible finite human words and that the communication the communication of the inner being of god in jesus is effective i mean it's so strong that it knocks us over and it burns us up like fire that's the miracle of the text fire of mercy heart of the world this would be yes. a good place to conclude but i'm not going to conclude yet because i want to have you comment on something else here and that is that you know you've seen these courses on the bible as literature uh but i would say that the greek of Matthew's Gospel and all the Gospels is not great literature. I mean, you actually find m more literary forms in the Old Testament. 
you know, the Song of Songs, the Book of Job. So, uh, in relation to what you just said, uh, it, it's paradoxical, but very beautiful that the depth comes not because it's a masterpiece of literature, but because of Christ himself. And Origen says, Origen says on that very point, he speaks of the humility of the text. Yes, yes. In other, in other words, what else did you expect? Would you expect Virgil's Aeneid, you know, perfectly balanced, uh, uh, poetic periods to matter? No, just as the Lord of armies became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter uh, of Nazareth. So, and, and that non-masterpiece literary form, the, the critics, I forget who it was, called it Sermo Piscatorius, Sermo Piscatorius, fisherman talk, <laughs> Fish, fisherman talk. And well, that's I, what it is. I remember reading uh, the great Bruce Metzger, uh, who was the great lower criticism. Lower criticism is when you're actually going into the grammar of the words. And, you know, we don't have any actual text of, written by Matthew. We have these copies of copies of copies. And so there's all these variant readings. Well, I was surprised to find that there are 33,000 variant readings in the New Testament. That's more than there are words. So in a certain sense, it's like Jesus passing through their midst. I mean, what is the New Testament, you know? Go ahead. I, I mean, your your mention of Bruce Metzger, I love Bruce Metzger, if only for one reason. In the parable of the virgins, of the ten virgins, the five wise and the five foolish in Matthew, yeah. he has a wonderful, really, it's a substantial footnote, because there are certain manuscripts of the parable that when the bridegroom, the, 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 the brides go out to meet and the text says, the bridegroom. There are some manuscripts that say they go out to meet the bridegroom and the bride because of the oddity of having a wedding without a bride, you see. <laughs> but Bruce, Bruce Metzger, in that footnote, which I include uh, in my book, I think, I should have <laughs> if I didn't. No, he says that there is good reason why it speaks only of a bridegroom and not of the bride, because the original text of the gospel was already doing an allegorical interpretation on the nature of the church, and it's the church herself, or the, the brides who are going to meet the bridegroom who collectively constitute the bride, because it's a divine wedding of God with humanity. And that's the Protestant Bruce Metzger uh, commenting on the on the variants. Yes. It's very it's, important. Yes, and I, I preach on that often because when you think of a wedding now, what image comes to your mind? Bride and groom. Bride, the, well, no, the bride. You think of the, whoever it's thinks special. of the groom. You think the dress, you know, the, and coming up, up the altar. You think of bride and groom, but the point is in Scripture, Jesus makes it clear these are bride and groom, but we're never told who the bride is because we are the bride. That's exactly. the beauty of it. And it's the same thing in the wonderful parable, uh, you know, of the, 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 the wedding of the king's son, son uh, yes. that, that the invited guests refused to come. Yes. And then they, they, they beat the messengers and kill them. And then everybody is dragged in. There, too, it's the wedding of the son, and there's no bride anywhere in sight. 
there's no bride anywhere in sight. That's right. Because the guests, the guests are the bride. The guests are the bride. Well, Father Simeon, Erasmo, (laughs) great talking to you. Uh, And we haven't given many specifics about what's actually in in this book page, but, but that's okay. We, we, you can't summarize four volumes like this in a half hour. And we just want you to know how, what a valuable book this is for your prayer life and for your life as a Christian and as a Catholic. So uh, if you haven't but, read, go ahead. I'll but, give you the last word. Very, very, no, 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 not the last word. No, but just very, very, br- very briefly. Yes, okay. Uh, very, very briefly. Uh-huh. That, that the book, big as it is, I mean, many, many priests in particular have told me that it's been useful for their Sunday homily. But they simply go to the passage in question and and read those pages, maybe not even all of those, just something to to get them started. So even though they're huge, uh, like a brick, as you say, uh, doorstop, um, you don't have to read it from cover to cover. Um, And and secondly, my intent, as, as I wrote, was to create in the reader's mind and heart an atmosphere of prayer to help the reader as a brother or a sister welcome the word. And in the first volume, uh, already there, I had put as an epilogue uh, the, the quote from Jeremiah fifteen sixteen that I love, where it says, Thy words were found, and I ate them, and thy words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. I mean, that that is what carried me through 2,968 pages. I, I added up the four. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Father Simeon Erasmo. Thank you, uh, thank Father Fasio. And our viewers here, God bless you all, and uh, good. have happy, blessed reading. Okay. Bye-bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.